0: So we are going through a series called Foundational Framework. I know you hear me say this every week, but there's some of us here that may be here for the first time or not really sure what's going on or have missed a few, and that's fine. But the idea is, is that we are going through the major events of the Old Testament in order to set the tone for how we should understand the major doctrines of the New Testament, okay? Now, I'm fully aware that if you've taken a look at the... uh, front of your handout that this is what's going on today right we're getting ready to open up the can of worms for some people but i promise you this this is no reason to hate anybody you can disagree and that's okay but i beg of you to give me a biblical reason why you disagree that's all i ask now let me say this up front You're probably not going to agree with me, and that's okay, but I want us all to agree with God, and I think that's the important thing. So what we're actually going to do today is a more or less sit down and turn on the light, pull out a pen Bible study is what we're going to do, okay? So if you wouldn't mind, look at the front of your handout here, the biblical doctrine of election. Election has become a battleground for many Christians, sparking carnal attitudes, and hostile responses at every point of disagreement, but we must remember two things. Number one, the Bible gives us our theology. That's important. We do not read our theology into the Bible. The Bible tells us how we ought to think about God and where our thinking is wrong, and when the Bible says something, we should convert our thinking to his thinking. That's, that's actually a good definition of repentance. In light of the truth that I have learned, I have to change how I think and operate moving forward. And number two, we are to operate in love. I am blown away by how many people want to talk or argue with me about this issue, and they are some of the most unloving people I've ever met in my life. We cannot afford to be that way. Let the Bible say what it says. If we have to agree to disagree, that's fine. But I simply want to show you what the Word of God has to say about it. So take your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 12. And we are going to do a lot of flipping around in the scriptures today, so make sure that your fingers are all nimble. If you need some coffee, let me know. We'll go out and get that too. I mean, that's why it's on a cart, right? So we can bring it down the middle aisle and (laughs) serve people as it goes. Genesis chapter 12, and we've read this before, but you can never read it enough. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Stop. There's your land promise, right? Number two, and I will make you a great nation. There's the seed or the offspring promise. And remember, this is the very little, little nucleus of what these promises become when they blossom into the covenant in chapter 15. And I will bless you. There's the blessing Part of it. In fact, it says, I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, or as you are going, you are to be a blessing, is the idea. Verse 3 And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families, all the families, very important, of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is the first mention of the concept of election. If you notice, it doesn't say anything in these three verses about either the word election or the word choice. Those words are pretty much interchangeable whenever you're dealing with this concept. But the concept is here. This is important. Now, if you would, take your Bible, turn over to Nehemiah. Keep your finger here if you like. You don't have to, but turn over to Nehemiah. Let's go through our books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd, good, 1st, 2nd, Ezra, good, good, you don't have to keep going, show-offs, turn over to Nehemiah chapter 9 here, in fact, this, this entire book, This entire chapter is worth reading. It's really, really great. But with the absence of time, um, look at verse 7. Chapter 9 of Nehemiah, verse 7. You are the Lord God. You are Yahweh Elohim, right? We've gone over that. Look what it says here. Who what? Chose Abram. Now, this Hebrew word here, and Pastor Steve is going to correct me, I'm sure, but is Bahar, is that correct? Did I add the guttural correctly, Pastor Steve? Bahar, is that right? It's close, close enough, I like it. Good. You gotta have that guttural thing in there, bahar. So, but the idea here is choosing, selecting. I'll take this one, is the idea. Who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. Now, what are we doing here? We are using what is called the analogy of scripture. And what that is, is that any time that you are reading through a passage, and you come across an event or a doctrine that is in place, if you can find other corresponding scriptures that speak to that same event or doctrine, you collect them all together, and essentially you use scripture as its own commentary on scripture. Everybody got that? So notice, even though we have the concept of election in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we find out that it is an event where God chooses Abram in chapter 9, verse 7. Does all that make sense? So we are showing how election is found in this situation. Now, I want to show you something real quick on here. You notice I've got something underlined in the middle of the page. It says the law of first mentions. I've actually been working on, and it's it's completed now, writing a hermeneutics book, writing a uh, how to interpret, how to study the Bible type of book uh, with my friend Grant Hawley at Bold Grace Ministries, and it should be published actually by the end of this month, which I'm really excited about. So I decided to go ahead and yank a quote out of it and stick it on here. The law first mentions, the first time a doctrine is mentioned typically defines a core element of that concept that is not lost as the progressive revelation in the Bible unfolds. The doctrine grows and develops but the core concept remains the same. Now let's test this real quick. Just just let's let's take a moment let's separate ourselves from the intensity of election and let me ask this question. What was the purpose of tongues originally? To reach a group of people that didn't understand each other? No. Uh Uh-oh, that was my answer. What? What was it? Does anybody know? It was a sign to the Jews for what? Okay, it was a sign to the Jews that Jesus was the promised one? Anybody else got an idea? The original reason that tongues was brought up is because it is a sign of judgment against the Jewish people. It is a sign of judgment against them because of their rejection of the Messiah. But you won't know that if you start in Acts chapter 2. That's where everybody starts In the Bible, you know it if you see what God says he's going to do with a people of other languages that you do not understand. When you pull it back to that in the Old Testament, you start to develop an understanding of what tongues is and why it's not a valid gift today. See, the problem is, is often when we talk about election or when somebody wants to bring it up, they want to run to Romans 9. They want to run to Ephesians 1. They want to run to John chapter 6, and they want to go, ha, 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 ha. And you can't do that because you've started in the middle. You have got to find out where did this doctrine first come from and what is it about, and you can't go anywhere else but the Old Testament when you begin with that. So that's what we're doing. Now, I ask the question in this, What was Abram chose for? Right? We're not not disputing that he's chosen. Would everybody here agree that he's chosen? Who chose him? God did. So we're not disputing that. That's all level ground. Excellent. But for what? What was he chosen to? And that should always be the question that we ask. Now, I've written a little piece down here at the bottom. And again, we can disagree, and that's great. Email me, and I'll put it in spam with all the rest of them. And I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I, I, I think it's important that we discuss this issue. Traditionally, election has been taught as God's choice of certain individuals for either heaven or hell, based on nothing involving the individual, good or bad, that they might do. It is God's choice, and he does as he sees fit. God's choice was made before the individuals were born. It does not matter how many times someone hears the gospel. If they are not elect, they will never believe because God has made it impossible for them to believe. It has been concluded that being spiritually dead is the same as being physically dead. God must make them alive, meaning regenerate them. In other words, God must cause them to be born again first and then give them faith as a gift so that they can believe. So the way that this makes sense traditionally is someone has to be born again first, and then they're given faith, and then they believe. So they're born again before they believe is the idea. Ultimately, God controls who is saved and who is damned. Now, I'll go ahead and give you a personal background. For about seven or eight years, I held to this view, and I held it vehemently. And if you disagreed with me, you were not elect and you were on the way to hell. That's how I dealt with it. Ask my wife what I was like when we met and when we first got married. If you want to know where the proof is in the pudding about the whole thing, right? That's where it is. But what I started to realize is when I started dealing with passages of the Bible and trying to draw it out to its logical conclusion, this doesn't make any sense. Why do we have God pleading with so many people to be saved if he controls who's saved and who's not? That makes no sense to me. And so I started to have to ask questions. Maybe what I believe is wrong. Maybe what I believe needs further scrutiny and understanding. And does the word of God point me in a certain direction? And I believe that it does. Now with that in mind, take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis, but go to chapter 18 this time. If the question is, what has Abram chose to, what has Abraham chosen to, We need a passage of Scripture that's going to tell us clearly what, in fact, that is. And I love it because it uses the Word. That's the way you know you're really on track. you got the same Word going on. Chapter 18 of Genesis, and all the beautiful sound of the rustling pages. I don't care how many trees had to die. It's beautiful, (laughs) right? No tree-hugging hippie stuff here. Verse 19, For I have chosen him, And that's Abraham, look back at verse 18, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, right? Verse 19, for, here's the explanation, I have chosen him. Why, God? Why did you choose Abraham? For what reason? So that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. What was Abraham chosen for? Was it to go to heaven when he died? Was it to go to hell when he died? What was he chosen for? What's that? To lead, to lead his people. He has a calling that he's chosen to. He has something that he's been given that he needs to fulfill in his life. That's where his calling is. Oh, I like all the eyebrows I'm seeing. What? Exactly. I love it. Good. Good. And I'm going to give everybody a chance to ask questions at the end of this. So good stuff, right? So now, since you don't believe me, let's turn over to Numbers. It's true. It's true. Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. Everybody familiar with Korah's rebellion against Moses and Abraham, or Aaron? Everybody familiar with that a little bit? This is the beginning inklings of it. I encourage you to read the whole chapter when you get an opportunity. What are you going to do this week for your devotional time? Read this whole chapter, right? You can see how this works out. Chapter 16 of Numbers, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. What tribe is he of? Levi. Levi. Notice that Korah is of the tribe of Levi. With Dathan and Abram the sons of Eliab, the sons of Peleth, the sons of Reuben. So they're of the tribe of Reuben. So you got three guys, one of Levi, two of Reuben, right? Took action and they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown. Now here's what's interesting about this word chosen that I've gotten on on your paper here. This is the Hebrew word quarry. And the idea is, is they were called or they were summoned to something. They were called to a point. This is not Behar, okay? It's not the same word. But yet, notice they decided to translate it still as chosen. They were called to something. Now, it's 250 men who are leaders of their congregation. Let me ask you, what do you think they were chosen to? Leadership. They're chosen to lead these people. Notice it's not they were chosen to heaven or hell. That's not here. Notice it says here, what's that? Who did choose them? Could have been God. It was probably amongst the people. It could have been the time whenever Jethro said, Moses, you're wearing yourself out. Remember, and Moses said, well, great, let's step back here and we'll choose some people and you'll be over thousands and you'll be over hundreds and you'll be over fifties. That could have been the time that they were chosen. But it were people who were appointed in and amongst themselves to certain roles in order to fulfill. And it says here they were assembly. A men of renown, they had a reputation. Verse 3, they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone far enough for all the congregation are holy. Now notice what he's claiming here. The whole thing that Korah is claiming is that it doesn't matter about just the priests who are in the line of Aaron. It's the idea that all of them are holy, not just these people. And Moses and Aaron were of the tribe of what? Levi. Okay, so this is important. So notice, all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst, so why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Pause. Did Moses exalt himself before the assembly of the Lord? No, in fact, let's go ahead and use the word. Who chose him for leadership? God did. Notice that. So yeah, at first he said, no. God, I don't talk good. And you were only educated at the greatest school on the face of the earth in Egypt, are you sure? <laughs> strange. So anyway, notice, when Moses heard this, I love it. He didn't rebel. He didn't pull out his fist and go, you want to go outside? He doesn't do that. He falls on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all of his company saying, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself. Even the one whom he will choose, good. And this is a word, Yahar, that is derived from bahar. okay? And the idea is still to choose or select something. It says here, he will bring near to himself. Do this, take censers for yourselves, Korah and all your company, and put fire in them, and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Is this about eternal salvation? It's not. It's about who the Lord is favoring in this situation or who has been chosen to lead the people. That's the idea. How about turning over to Deuteronomy 18 or as Tom likes to say dude you're on to me 18 I don't care who you are that never gets old that's funny that'll make you laugh your woods wet, right chapter 18 verse 1 Deuteronomy Now, interesting, because we have the same idea going together here. The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion, or his inheritance is the idea there. They shall have no inheritance among the countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Now, this shall be the priest's due from the people from whom for, sorry, from those who offer a sacrifice, either an ox or a sheep, of which they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, and you shall give him the first fruits of your grain, your new wine and your oil, and the first shearing of your sheep for, here's the reason why, the Lord your God has chosen him, same word, and his sons from all your tribes, why, to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. What were they chosen to? To serve, to stand before the Lord and serve. How about the next one? First Samuel 10. First Samuel chapter 10. See, this is one of those that hopefully you can go back and study and study and study and check it out. And understand, I'm not giving you an exhaustive case here. I, I'm going to actually encourage you here in just a little bit to do a study on it for yourself talk to you about how to do that first samuel for the the, sorry first maybe tongues is still around i don't know first samuel chapter 10 verse 24 and this is when they've anointed saul and they're going after him and he's going to become the king of israel the first king of israel verse 24 samuel said to all the people do you see him whom the lord has chosen Bahar, same thing Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. What was Saul chosen to? To be king. That's exactly what he was chosen to. Now turn over to the next book, 2 Samuel 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now this instance is extremely interesting. And here's the reason why. Context always determines meaning. This is important. Context always determines meaning. You can't just read the word salvation and automatically always think it means go to heaven when you die. That creates a lot of problems, especially when you get into the New Testament of how often it uses saved and salvation. So we have to pay attention to what's going on here. Chapter six, verse one. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 chosen men. This actually can be taken in one of two ways. It's either one, what we've seen so far, they were chosen and appointed to a certain task. They are part of the men of Israel who are to rise up and to go forward as soldiers, or it could actually be translated as choice men, meaning that special, or there's something about it is the reason for its choosing. It had a higher value or a higher worth. Maybe these were the ones that were strong amongst the people. We don't know. I would say that's a second definition that's possible, but I would stick more with the first definition to understand what it's about. Okay. So notice these men are chosen to something, and there's 30,000 of them that are chosen. Now, if you take your Bible and you look over at verse 21, you see, so David said to Mikal. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Does anybody know who Mickel's father is? King Saul. Chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. In fact, Mickel was real upset because, man, David was the John Travolta of his day. Okay? He could straight shake a leg like nobody's business. And she was upset because he was celebrating the incoming of the ark. So she got mad and looked upon him spitefully. And He goes, wait a second, let's talk about where the real beginning of this is from. God actually chose me to replace your father as what? King. He was chosen to be king. Now, another interesting thing we could do is sit here and ask, okay, well, where's the first place that this word, Behar, shows up at? Take your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 6. talk about the first meaning of the concept. Let's talk about the first meaning of where the word occurs. Genesis 6. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Somebody have a different translation besides chose there? Whomever they chose. There's the first mention of this word in Scripture, Behar. In fact, it's also used, if we want to look over in chapter 13 real quick, turn over to 13. This is used whenever Lot has the opportunity from Abraham to say, hey, look any direction that you want, choose whatever section of land that you want. You take your stuff and you go that way, I'll take my stuff, I'll go the other way. And so notice what it says here, chapter 13, verse 11. So Lot, what? Chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. What did Lot choose? Section of land. Section of land to deal with. Now, you look down at your papers, we have this last example here that I want to share with you. I want you to pay close attention to it. It's very important. Isaiah, chapter 42. We're starting in verse 1. Read these four verses. I'll ask you a couple of questions about it. Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law or for his instruction now here's a question just by reading these four verses and we could go on and look at it who's this about in isaiah 42 it's about the messiah it's about jesus is Jesus listed or the Messiah? Let's, let's say the Messiah since we're not using the word Jesus. We don't use it until Matthew chapter 1. But would you, are we clear here that he's chosen? Yeah? No problem. Who chose him? What was he chosen for? To be the Messiah. Not only that, let's be more specific about it. To serve, notice my servant. Uh, notice that God's soul delights in him, which is good stuff. He's put his spirit upon him. That's good. He will bring forth... Justice to the nations. Now, I don't know about you, but when we talk about a justice of the peace, who are we talking about? A judge. Notice that Jesus has been chosen to be judge. That's important. That has a lot of ramifications when you're dealing with end times. Who is the judge of all things? What's Jesus Christ? Father's appointed to him all things a judge. Notice that you have other things here, not crowd in the street, those types of things. Uh, look at the end of verse three. He will be. Sorry, he will faithfully faithfully, according to a standard is the idea, bring forth justice. We think that standard is God's word, isn't it? Notice it says here, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Why? Because his law is true, his instruction is true, and it is That which defines how justice should be brought. You think these four verses have a lot to do with the Messiah being chosen to bring about justice? Absolutely they do. Now, give everybody a sigh of relief. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9, right? I just want to show you this real quick. Luke 9. Now, you're familiar with this. This is the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Peter, James, and John go with him up on the mountain. And all of a sudden, Jesus is transformed or transfigured before them. And Peter freaks out. He wants to start building tents, right? He doesn't know what to do. Moses and Elijah appear. But what is amazing, verse 34 of chapter 9 of Luke, while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my, what is it church? Church. My chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Is Jesus Christ the chosen one of God? He is very clearly. Now let me ask you a question real quick just to think through this. The way that we've been traditionally taught the doctrine of election is that what it is, and let's just use ourselves as a an as a, as a example. There's a whole sea of people. Before they've ever even been born, therefore they haven't been created yet. And the idea is that God just, based on nothing that you've done or have not done or anything like that, just goes through and for his own purposes, he decides he's going to choose, choose, choose you. but he, he might leave you, 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 right? Tom, you're probably in trouble on this one. I know it's nothing good or bad that you've done, but still. Um takes who he wants. Therefore, if you're chosen, you're considered one of the elect. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think there were many messiahs, possible messiahs, and therefore God, just according to whatever purposes that he wanted, decide who he would choose to be the messiah, and that messiah would be the chosen one? Is that how it works? I mean, that would kind of negate the whole idea that Jesus is God, wouldn't it? If that's not how Jesus is chosen, why in the world would we think that's how we are chosen? Does that make sense? Instead, what we see is that Jesus is chosen to a ministry, a vocation, a calling. Jesus certainly wasn't chosen to go to heaven or hell when he died, was he? No, not at all. In fact, I'll go ahead and say this. You can't find one verse in the entire Bible that says that someone was chosen to heaven or hell when they die. You can't find one. Yet, you read a lot of popular theological literature that's out there today, and that's what you commonly find all the time. And what it's done is it's created this fatalistic idea this, well, it couldn't have been any other way. Well, it's just determined. And what you find out is is that for people who believe in God and travel down that path, and for people who are atheists and don't believe in God, they travel down that path too. Because what you find out is that DNA, material, matter, that's always been what they say is the chief of everything, well, you couldn't have done anything other than what you did because that's how your processes are playing out. In other words, there's no freedom. And if there's no freedom, There's no way to make a moral choice. And if there's no way to make a moral choice, then it doesn't really matter what is good or bad because you couldn't have done otherwise. So therefore, all you have is that God is reduced to a will, not a personal creator who cares about his kids. Notice that people are chosen to a vocation, a calling, a ministry. Now here's the beautiful thing. We have 17 minutes for questions and further comments, and I did that on purpose because I want you to talk to me. Let me encourage you with this first before we do that. You can find these for 20 bucks, okay? They are worth 20 times that. This is what's known as an exhaustive concordance, and man, they're exhaustive, right? They're thick. In fact, this is the strongest strongs. Tom was asking me about I told him, man, I haven't been able to rip it yet, it's so strong. That's how good it is. Anybody get that joke? Okay, never mind. But here's what you find. I actually marked it in this. I can look up the word elect or election. And it tells me every time that it occurs, both in the old and the new testament. I can look up the word choice, chosen, choicest, choices whatever it is, and I can find every instance that it's listed in the Bible, and it will give you a number, and that number will give you for the Hebrew, and another number will also give you for the Greek, and you turn to the back, and you have the Hebrew and Greek definitions. So the whole idea of being chosen, number 977, the idea here is to select, to be acceptable, to appoint, or to choose, or to be choice. It's excellent to join, but rather require is the idea. You look up the idea of what it is to elect something or election. You find the same thing. Number 972, notice it's not very far. It says here, select, choose, chosen one, elect. And it says from, this word is from, it's derived from the root word, which is number 977, bahar. Now you can go through this and you can get out your Bible and a legal paper full of paper, right? And go through and find every instance and research for yourself and ask the question, what are these people being chosen to? And then answer it with the context. Context always determines meaning. And come to your own conclusion about what this means. Now, that would be my encouragement to you, and I understand not everybody has the time to do that, but it is a worthwhile study and it will change your life. It changed mine. So now, questions. Go for it. If there isn't any choice, then the entire story about the Garden of Eden makes no sense. Okay? So any to me anybody who's saying jeez God predetermines one way or another. Paul brings up a good point. If there is no ability for man to choose, then what's going on in the Garden of Eden? Let me give you the example, let me give you the answer. The answer that is traditionally given is, well, that's easy. Since God knows all things, and since he meticulously predetermines all things, he predetermined for Adam and Eve to sin. Sin is part of what God wanted to happen. Now, I don't know about you, but just from what you understand about the Bible, does that seem consistent with the character of God? Not at all. It's scary. It's scary stuff. So you're exactly right. The idea to get around that or the idea to answer that question is, well, it's because God predetermined sin. God's okay with using sin. He's the author of sin. And I think that's wrong. Other questions? Feel free to talk. It's okay. Would, would that be better defined as uh, Adam had a free will? I do believe that Adam had a free will, and he chose to disobey God. Some of the arguments that are used that Adam was the only person who ever had a free will, and when he chose to disobey God, it thrust everybody else into a situation where all they can do is choose sin all the time. So they're they're kind of helpless and out there. In fact, it's often described as the doctrine of total depravity, but that's not a correct term for it. It's actually total inability. You have no ability whatsoever to respond to God at all is the idea. And that's where it comes back to the comment of you've equated being spiritually dead with being physically dead. I have a lot of problems with that because I see that the Bible teaches something completely different. For instance, anybody tried to bring charges against somebody who's physically dead, take them to court. No, except for who I know of. And that didn't work out well. But do dead people get speeding tickets? No? Who's is everybody with me? Everybody sleep Is it too hot in here? Okay, just want to make sure everybody's like, I don't care. <laughs> Police don't write dead people speeding tickets. Dead people aren't charged for murder. They can't stand trial. Why? Because they can't sin. They're already dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, I agree. So why do we have such instances as where Jesus says in Matthew 23, 37, all day long I reach out my hand, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you to myself like a hen gathers chicks under its wing, and you were not willing. Interesting. Other questions? Come on, we're just getting started. All right, I like it. Maxine! Laverne, I'm scared of you. Maxine! (laughs) Mm-hmm. Means that you were chosen for a task yes yes i agree i agree you're correct laverne go for it man no no we're good uh, well let, let, let's let me get closer to time we have to close it i'll come back to you i'm just kidding go ahead John 15, 16, let's turn there. I love it. What about this passage? What about this passage? In fact, I was going to ask this question. If this is something you would like to study a little bit more, next week, uh, the bells and the choir are going to be playing during the 9 a.m. service, so everybody be here for that. But the following Sunday after that, would you like to explore this a little bit more into the New Testament? Okay, so we'll do that. Good. I love it. It's great. Chapter 15, verse 16. Real quick, does anybody know what John chapter 15 is about? How's it start out? The vine. The vine and the branches. And in order to produce fruit, what must a Christian do? Abide. You have to abide. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Excellent. Now, here's a question. Let's do our basic Bible study stuff. Who's speaking? Jesus is speaking. Who's he talking to? His disciples, is Judas there? No, he's not. He's already left. He's already left out. He leaves out in chapter 13. He's gone. He's gone to get everybody, take some money, and he's going to come back and betray Jesus. Now, here's the question. If Jesus is talking to his 11 disciples he has left over, saved or unsaved? Saved. So if they're saved, they have eternal life. Justification is a done deal for them, okay? So we read down through here. And in fact, let me point point this out to you real quick. Look at verse 2. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's a terrible translation. It's an awful translation. And if you don't believe me because of my elementary Greek stylings, you're more than welcome to ask Pastor Steve, and he can look it up and he can tell you as well. The Greek word here for takes away is the word iro. It's actually spelled A-I-R-O. And the very first meaning for this word is actually he lifts up, not he takes away, Some of your translations will say he takes them away to be burned is the idea. And immediately, because we've seen fire, that must be hell, and that's what we conclude. If you're not really living for Jesus, you're not really saved. That's crazy. Your acceptance in Christ is because of his work, not yours. That's important. So in this idea here, it's actually he lifts them up. If you're not bearing fruit, like a gracious vine dresser who comes upon a vine that is not bearing fruit, he takes the time to lift It up and if you get an opportunity to study viticulture which is this whole idea in first century israel of what it takes to get vines to produce fruit it's a very painstaking and slow process where the vine dresser has to be very careful and wise of how he works with this fruitless vine it's actually a a very beautiful picture we'll get there eventually but down to 16 in fact let's get some context verse 12 this is my commandment that you love one another Just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Notice it doesn't say you are truly saved if you do what I command you. It doesn't say that. He's talking about intimacy in their relationship. He says here, verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Now stop. Does Jesus have a pretty special relationship with these 11 if that's the case? Absolutely. We see that from the context. So now we get the verse in question. You did not choose me. Is that true? Did Matthew go up and go, Jesus, I think you're a good Savior to go with. Doesn't say that, does he? No. Jesus goes to every one of these people and he chooses them. I did not, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now watch this. And appointed you, That you would go and bear fruit. Pay attention to that. And that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. Were they chosen to go to heaven or hell? No. What were they chosen for? To go forward and bear fruit. In fact, he appointed them to do so. Your commissioning is to go and to bear fruit. That's what you're to do, disciples. Very important. So does that help, Laverne? ordained you ordain them and that's the thing the whole idea of foreordination ordination and all that that's a whole nother study they're related concordance is a great place to start strong strongest is a great place to start good somebody else had another question colleen go ahead we man we don't have that much time yeah. <laughs> well ne- next time we can do that we have six minutes do we want to, real quick, does anybody have a question about a, ver, a passage that might be a little bit more quickly, but I promise you, in, in two weeks, in fact, I just spoke at the New Tribes College in October on that verse. I had 25 minutes to do it, and I did nothing but yell the whole time to try to get through everything, uh, but it's okay. The question was, what do you do with Ephesians chapter one, verses three and four? And just so you guys know, I've spent more time in the book of Ephesians than I have anywhere else in the Bible, so... I've wrestled with that for a long, long time, Colleen, and it's actually—I'm actually really surprised I missed it. But it's because of everything I had been told and taught before, I couldn't get around the mental block of it. So, but in two weeks, we'll deal with that. Another question, something we can we can tackle in five or six minutes here. Go for it, Mike. Mm-hmm. Turn to John three real quick. I think this is important to ask. I asked this question to some people who hold the other view, and they don't, and they don't have a good an answer. They really don't. They can't understand it. Um, in fact, I actually uh, know a guy. He said he asked a pastor one time, uh, what do you do with John 3.16? He said, oh, I don't preach that verse. It's too hard. <laughs> and I was like, man, something's going on, right? Look at John 3. Of course, this is Jesus and Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus is a Pharisee. We know that he's not a believer at this point. Jesus is talking to him about you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven, okay? How can a man be born when he's old? And just go back in his mother's womb? I don't understand it. Nicodemus is obviously thinking physical. Jesus is obviously preaching spiritual, okay? And so let's see here. Uh, Let's see here. Verse nine, it's a good place to start. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And I love Jesus's response. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Now, as a Pharisee, does he have the Old Testament memorized? He does. Is everybody else coming to him for spiritual guidance? They are. And notice that Jesus is going, okay, time out, man. You don't get this? Look what he says after that. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen and you do not accept our testimony. If you have heard earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Does Jesus sound frustrated just from reading the words off the page? Why would Jesus be frustrated with Nicodemus? Why doesn't he just go, you know what, Nicodemus, the problem is, you're not chosen for heaven. You've been predestined to go to hell. When you die, you're walking firewood. Of course you don't get it. You can't spiritually understand it. So I'm not that upset about it. It's what the Father chose to do before the foundation of the world. He doesn't say that. Jesus is upset because he is revealing amazing, awesome truth. And notice that he has all the head knowledge, but he still can't grasp it. I would say that he's unsaved. It doesn't seem like we have any evidence of his salvation until he comes along with Joseph of Arimathea and helps with the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. Now, how how that happened, Scripture doesn't tell us. We, we don't understand how in the world that went down. Another question. We still got three, four minutes. Yes, sir. Determined to occur. Excellent. Everybody turn to Acts chapter 2. Is it 2? Maybe it's 4. Let me look here. Oh man! Since this is a new Bible, I don't have it marked. Let me look. Two twenty-two. Is that all right? No, it's not two twenty-two. Oh yes, two twenty-three. Uh, whenever Peter is talking to them, verse twenty-two. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Excellent verse, right? And immediately our minds go, oh my gosh, how in the world will make sense of it? Pause. What does the word foreknowledge mean? I mean, just break it down. Knowledge means you know something. For, added to it, is what? To know something beforehand. Does God know all things? Absolutely. Does God predetermine that Jesus must die for sin? Absolutely. Who else is going to pay for it? In fact, aren't they all the Old Testament sacrifices set up in line for the purpose of pointing towards the Lamb of God when he shows up and that's how he's identified by John the Baptist? Absolutely. So is there any problem with knowing that Jesus predestined or predetermined that the Messiah had to die. Anybody got a problem with that? Here's the problem that we come up with. Look at the next part here. You nailed to a cross by the hands of what? Godless men. Men without the law is what it means, and put him to death. Does that mean that God dictated the choices of the people that put him to death? Does that mean that God used sin to accomplish his purposes? No, in fact, sin's what he's having to deal with in order to get people redeemed. Does everybody see that? Now, there's another verse. This isn't the one I was thinking of. There's another verse that deals with this whole idea. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, predetermined. Uh, good thing for a little margins here. Is it 318? 318. Mm, no. The grief. What's that? We only got six minutes. Gotta find it. Good gravy. See this? It's fun because you're putting me on the spot. It's bad because I haven't marked this in my Bible. Uh, my other Bible's all marked up. So, Jeremy has the microphone. That's correct. Thank you, Tom. Um, I want to say it's four. Delivered him up for ten. Mm. Crucified, got raised from death by this name. No. 322. No. Hmm. I love it. We're all like studiously into it. That's great. 428. Yes, that's it. Everybody go to 428. Excellent. Now, this is after Peter and John have been beaten. They're sent back. They go away glorifying God for what had gone on. They said here, uh, verse 23, let's start there. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all. reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in the city, there were gathered together, pay attention, against your holy servant Jesus, against your holy servant Jesus, pay attention, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, And the peoples of of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predetermined to occur. Do you see how this goes together with what we saw in 228? Okay. The idea that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is a predetermined event. Does that mean that God forced the hands of the men who killed him? No. Because if that was the case, God is now the author of sin. Does God have to work with sin? Yes. Does God have to deal with sin? Yes. Sin is a reality. But according to the way that he created all things and the consummation of all things with the return of Jesus Christ, we have to remember this, that sin and death are an abnormality. Why are we so upset when people pass away? Because death is wrong. That's the reason why. It's because this isn't what should be happening. It is a testimony of our sinfulness. It's not that I'm saying we deny the doctrine of predestination. Not at all. I'm telling you that what we often think we're predestined or that people are predestined to heaven or hell is not what the Bible teaches. We see plainly that the cross of Christ, the fact that he needed to die for sins, that's predestined. That's predestined. Good question. So in two weeks, do we want to hit the subject again? Deal with the New Testament. Okay. If you want... Inside of your handouts, you can look, and it'll be online in case you miss it. Look inside your handouts here. Notice in the very middle page of the Inside Church staff. Some of you have maybe never seen this before. That's a joke. Notice that you have there my email address. I ask you to think a lot about what you email me as far as a question that you're going to ask, so I'm not having to sort I'm not to spend hours sorting through a lot of stuff. And I will try to compile all of the questions that people have about specific passages so that we can go through and answer them and then I'll include them on the handout for two weeks. Does that sound okay? Is that good? So you can email me. Uh, if you want to talk to me on the phone about it or something to stop by here like Tom does inconveniently all the time. Uh, in order to talk to me about some things uh actually he's very helpful he's a good good man yeah bring food bring coffee uh we can talk i'll be more apt to talk to you if you got coffee in your hand i promise you that so and then we will we will we will definitely do that so and you guys have been really good about this nobody's called for a meeting for my firing or nothing that's great i'm excited that's good yeah i don't know if my firing was preordained or not but i know the death of jesus christ on the cross was so let's pray together father thank you for our time in the word i pray god that this spark a study of our own to get into the word uh to get into the text of scripture to compare scripture with scripture uh to try to leave our preconceived ideas at the door and to allow for the bible to teach us and the holy spirit to be our teacher to have pen in hand to take the word of god seriously and to father think as you would have us to think so that we can live correctly for your glory. Thank you for Jesus, who is the chosen one of God, who is the one commissioned to die for our sins. We thank you, God, for his sacrifice. It's in his name. Amen.